2: This episode of The Bip Show is brought to you by Bridge Street Capital Partners. Bridge Street is a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specializes in equity capital markets transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in the mining, energy and tech sectors. If you are a Section 708 sophisticated investor and would like to be on Bridge Street's distribution list for their upcoming capital raisings, send them an email with your details to info at bridgestreetcapital.com.au and mention The Bip Show in your message. And now, on with the show. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business, investing, and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder that all the financial information in this podcast is general in nature only. Speak to a professional advisor about your needs. Uh, I'm Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group, a Research and Campaigns Consultancy here in Sydney. And I'm joined by James Whelan, Investment Manager at VFS Group. How are you, James?
1: Ah, uh, not so bad. How are you Apple?
2: I am good. Looking forward to this one. Also on the line uh, uh, from Amsterdam is Ken Vexler, Managing Director and Acumen Management. Uh, G'day, Ken.
3: Hello, Paul. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Good to be on.
2: Yeah. Um, so, look, let's get straight into it. A lot has happened uh, with China in just recent weeks. Obviously, an awful lot has happened in recent decades, but just in the last couple of months, a lot has been going on. In this show, we are going to talk Evergrande, uh, Australia's new defence partnership with the US and the UK. We're going to talk about risks to China's economy, uh, the addition of apparent hostage taking to China's diplomatic toolkit. Uh, and some, probably most importantly, some apparently significant shifts in how the Chinese leadership is thinking about the role uh, its economy plays in pursuing its goals. It's not hard to find people with views uh, on all of this, uh, but educated and well-informed views are uh, hard to come by. Our guest is someone who really knows what he's talking about. Patrick chovanek is economic advisor to Silvercrest Asset Management a $20 billion wealth fund based in New York. He was previously managing director and chief strategist at Silvercrest. Patrick has been visiting China and working there on and off since the 1980s. He has traveled to all 34 of the country's regions, and he spent five years teaching as a professor on the MBA program at Tsinghua University in Beijing. Now, as well as his advisory work at Silvercrest, he is adjunct professor at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University, and he recently secured his private pilot's license, which I uh, hope we can uh, find some time to chat about at the end. But Patrick chovanek welcome to The Bip Show.
0: Hi, it's good to be with you. Thank you very much.
2: Look, it's hard to know where to start here, but maybe the best place is really at the top. Um. What do you make of all of the recent suite of shifts in economic policy we've seen from President Xi? Uh, and maybe, for simplicity, maybe you can uh, outline the top three themes that you see unfolding here um, in terms of economics and markets. And we, we can park the geostrategic stuff for later.
0: Well, Xi is clearly a top-down kind of guy. Um, there was—it's—it's it's interesting if we look back to you know almost almost a decade ago when he took power uh, it's hard to remember that there were a lot of people who were very optimistic about him being a reformer being a consensus-based leader Um, there was when the first sort of economic document that they came out with policy document Called the Third Plenum Document had a whole list of market-based reforms that they were going to undertake that was going to be, you know, really a one hesitate to say a great leap forward, um, but but that was really going to propel China in what a lot of people felt was the right direction. That view has really changed. And it's changed gradually, but now it's it's changed significantly in terms of the perception. Of what she is doing. I mean, first of all, there was the corruption crackdown. Um, they called it a corruption crackdown, but you know, it seemed to target any kind of source of opposition to she and the party. So there was plenty of corruption to crack down on, but but it was very much a way of him consolidating power. And for a long time, people said, "Well, you know, that's what he needs to do in order to push through all these economic reforms that are necessary." But it soon became clear that he really was not interested in giving up control of any aspect of the economy. In fact, the, the, the government was going to be, and the party was going to be in more and more control, um, of what took place in the Chinese economy, which was really a change in direction from, you know, in, in certainly imperfect reforms, um, for the past 40 years or so, but, but, you know, reforms that were moving towards more openness, uh, in Chinese society and Chinese economy, if not the political system, so so that has undergone a reversal, and now you're seeing more and more, um, you know, crackdown taking place through society um, where there's less room for any kind of dissent, um, much less political open political dissent. Certainly not, but but even but even dissent about policy or the overall direction of the economy, which used to be fairly uh tolerated uh under his predecessor and then you see a growing assertiveness on the world stage um and a sense that you know china doesn't need to fit into the existing international order They that the international order needs to accommodate china and its needs which you know you can understand to some degree um with a rising country that's more prosperous and, and more wealthy and, and uh but you know, there's obviously in Australia and obviously in the United States, there are ways in which the people feel that um, China is really throwing its weight around in ways that are not necessarily very welcome at all. So, you know, that in a nutshell, you said there's a lot of room to cover, uh, but but that's the big shift that we've seen under Xi. Yeah,
2: we're we're certainly uh, feeling it uh, here in Australia. Uh, I think there is an awful lot of um, Australian coal uh, that simply can't get into China, and we'll um, we'll talk about this energy crunch. uh, I am sure at some point. Um, But the the other big thing um, that's going on at the moment is with Evergrande, or I've heard it pronounced Evergrande. Um, Maybe you can correct me. (laughs) Um, But uh, look again, everybody has a view here. But since you understand, um, you you know, you've got a a, a better than uh, most uh, understanding of of the country, uh, I think people would like to hear how you think about this. How serious is uh, this change in the property market with Evergrande at the top of it? And how do you see it playing out?
0: So two things to understand about Evergrande. The first is that it's not a new problem. Um, You know, if you had asked me 10 years ago, what's the... Riskiest company in China's property market, which you know, I felt was pretty risky at the time. I would have said Evergrande. Um, so Evergrande has been persistently on the radar screen as a potential minefield when it came to you know economic and financial uncertainty in China.
4: Specifically, uh, this,
0: well that that they that they have built an empire of debt um and that they are not generating the kind of returns and the kind of income stream uh that would support that empire of debt. And you know, only a few years ago, uh, when people may not have been paying as close attention, uh Evergrande nearly went bust and there was talk about, you know, there were there were short sellers that were doing reports on it, um, saying this is this is a house of cards waiting to fall and you know they went through some the market sort of you know had some scrutiny and the government came in and, and essentially very quietly saved them um and prevented them from from uh, encountering any kind of financial instability so this has been out there for some time the second important thing to understand about evergrand is that it is not unique that it is typical of problems uh, in the property sector and in the economy more broadly in China, so there are lots and lots of Evergrands out there. that may not be quite as large, uh, they may not be getting quite the same scrutiny, but that's why people are concerned that you can't, you know, pull the thread with Evergrande and have it be just confined to Evergrande going bust, that there are all kinds of things that are connected, either directly connected with it or face similar sort of risks, that if those risks are exposed, um, who knows where they go.
2: So this is the thing, isn't it? We, we kind of don't know um, how much the state is willing to step in here um, for Evergrande and the other ones that are lining up. Um, well,
0: I think we know you know, in the past that the state has always been willing to step in or forced to step in, you know, because we've seen time and time again uh, with the solar sector in China, with uh, the railroad ministry in China, you know, people look at the, the railroad ministry and the, the, the high-speed rail lines that it built all over China and say, wow, you know, it's Pretty cool and that's impressive and people do use it um but the whole railroad ministry went bankrupt and was dissolved um yeah. because of the cost of producing that so we and and i mentioned the solar industry you know something very very similar happened where they built an empire of debt and hugely expanded capacity and reduced solar prices all around the world and 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 but the problem was is that they weren't making money and uh, they essentially went bankrupt but the government. You know, you might hear a company disappear or have some financial difficulties or default on something, but then you hear nothing more because what happens, and this is happening right now with Evergrande, uh, they direct the banks, they direct other state companies to come in and take over the assets and spread the losses around. The losses don't disappear. They're very real, but you never hear about them again. And that resolves the immediate crisis. But it does not resolve the underlying problem. In fact, it may actually perpetuate the underlying problem.
3: Just, just on that, Patrick, if, if I may jump in, I've, I've sort of well, uh, you've in part answered what I'm about to ask, but I'd still like to sort of have a chat about it. You know, in the at the peak of this evergreen, I suppose noise and and uh, headlines and whatnot. I was speaking to. People not dissimilar to yourself that based, have been in, uh, over in China and uh, have done a lot of work with China, and essentially they surmised the reaction function to the Evergrande situation in terms of the CCP as um, three, you know, three prong: either a policy lever versus a rug pull versus a full napalming. Now, suppose to what what I mean by well, the policy lever sort of explains itself. The rug pull is a nuanced version of uh, a policy lever and a full napalming. And the full napalming would essentially be to let Evergrande go entirely bust and in that maybe, uh, in that outcome, let let the moral hazard sort of sink in and, and let people understand that, you know, th- this was, was all for the all for the due course. So it's a very roundabout and long way of asking
0: you know, what, what are they going to do? It wrong <laughs> Sorry. Right. Um, yeah, so so what I would say is that the politics have shifted in China a bit um, in terms of rescuing companies. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, Evergrande was rescued intact. And, you know, the tycoon who owns it basically, you know, emerged I don't want to say unscathed, but he remained a tycoon, and uh, and so there were no consequences in that sense. Uh, you know, debt was rolled over; debt was you know poured. In, old wine was poured in new bottles, et cetera. What's shifted now is that you know they want to make an example of somebody. Um, I doubt that Evergrande will continue to exist in anything related to its current form. I doubt that its owner will remain a tycoon. Um, he may even go to jail. Uh, does that remove the moral hazard? Well, no. Um, because you could say, well, that will set an example to all the other property developers and on anybody else in China, you know, not to get way in over their heads, but they're already way over in their heads, <laughs> way over their heads. And, you know, if you, if you're starting out in China, maybe you'd say, well, hmm, I shouldn't follow the Evergrande path. Um, but, um, but no, uh, you well, have if, property developers who have already been doing this for you know a decade or more. What are they going to do? They have to continue to borrow. They have to continue to hope that the bank, you know, uh, rolls over their loans. They can't just say, "Oh, I'm 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 done with this." Um, so it doesn't it doesn't really send the systemic message that one
1: would imagine. I'm going to, uh, Patrick James here uh, from Sydney, and, and it's, it's a heck of an honour to talk to you. Um, thanks for coming on. The, I think, uh, the the question that I get from my clients and, and anyone that I'm talking to from the golf club to any, any person just to, that I bump into, the automatic response is, oh, well, obviously the CCP is going to bail them out. And from what I've seen, and this will lead us into sort of the next part of the conversation that we're going to have on the show, what if – what if they're not going to, what's the standard Evergrande client look like? Because it doesn't look like, from what I'm seeing, it doesn't look like the average guy who's waiting on his first house for his family to build his future. It looks like the seventh or eighth condo of an overextended Chinese consumer who is has, way who has extended, which then adds to, to my feel to say that there's less likely a chance that they'll get bailed out because it, it is that representation of an overextended wealthy class that has gone a little bit too far. What does the average evergreen plant actually look like? Who are they actually bailing out or not bailing out?
0: Well, I'm I'm sure that there are some wealthy people who, you know, have numerous uh, condos and and this is not their life savings. But there are enough people who have put in something close to their life savings that they're going to be awfully unhappy uh, if... uh, if Evergrande doesn't build the condo that they have pre-purchased, and this is a, an important aspect of this, that you know, one of the ways that Evergrande has kept itself going, and a lot of property developers keep themselves going in China, is that they take, you know, they they take the money first, and then a couple of years later, uh, you get the product. Yeah. Um, and there are enough people who uh, are um, are going to be. You know, jilted by that. That uh, that they're going to create a brouhaha. Not they're not alone, by the way. Uh, there's also Evergrande has been essentially borrowing from its its subcontractors. You know, giving them commercial paper in exchange for work instead of actual cash. Um, and uh, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of people who they've essentially borrowed from. Uh, that will end up in trouble if they don't get paid. And that's where the the bailout comes in. Uh, Not necessarily that Evergrande as an entity will get bailed out, but somehow, not just for financial reasons, but also for social reasons, uh, the government is going to feel a lot of pressure to make sure that people get paid uh, at least something of what they're owed. There is also the financial uh, just social, I emphasize, but there's also the financial risk there mm-hmm. that, uh, you get contagion that, that you get, um, um, people perceive risk differently. They start asking questions about other economy, uh, other, uh, forms of debt in the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, let me skip back a couple of years ago when they tried to make a few, um, a few real estate developers, in Hangzhou or in or around Hangzhou, go bust. And they said at the time, "Oh, don't worry about systemic risk. These are we're not going to let any big ones go. We're just going to some of these smaller, shakier ones. Uh, they're they're not going to be around." And what they very quickly discovered was that in that city, um, credit began to freeze up because and and loans began to be pulled on companies that had nothing to do with uh, real estate. Why? Because a lot of those companies, the, the basis for borrowing in China from banks is real estate as collateral. There, it's not credit risk. It's do you have real estate or some other asset, but primarily real estate, that will guarantee this loan? And if you don't with your factory, what do you do? You know, If you, if you have land under your factory, you can pledge that and say, ah, you know, we could sell it and, and we could make a lot of money and pay you back. But what if you don't? You go to a real estate company like Evergrande. And you pay them to guarantee your loan. So what was happening was real estate developer goes bust. And all of a sudden, all the loans that it guaranteed throughout that city for companies that had nothing to do with real estate, all of a sudden looked like a risky proposition to the banks.
1: So I want to make rubber, dog, poop, whatever. I've got a factory and I need to be able to have a guarantor for it. And I can't anymore because of the, of the real estate. There's yes. Not a guarantee. Yeah.
0: Yes. And so... What, what needs to be understood about you know, the, the, the risk to the Chinese economy here is not, oh, there are some overexposed real estate developers who might go bust and a couple people might not get their apartments. Um, it is that real estate lies at the heart of all credit in the Chinese economy, and in particular, the assumption that real estate prices will always rise or at least not fall for any sustainable amount of time. And that, if that becomes questionable, the entire basis for the banking system becomes questionable.
2: Certainly, now, sounds like a, a a familiar theme to us here in uh, here in Australia. Certainly, a lot I of no p- idea what you are talking
1: about. For. <laughs>
2: well, no, a lot. Um, but, well, e- but
0: even but even more pervasive because you know in, in the West there may have been that assumption, and it may have affected certain categories of assets. But the asset classes that are affected by that in China including all business loans Mm. are much more pervasive. And you just don't know where it leads because they were surprised when that happened. Uh, They didn't see that thread and they quickly stopped pulling it. Um, And that's what I think happens. A lot of these times is the government realizes there's a problem. There's an issue. uh, Maybe, maybe somebody needs to be taught a lesson and then they start to pull that thread and they start to see other things unravel that they never imagined would come undone. And then they stop.
2: Uh, um, can I ask you how much this was tied to the sort of great uh, sweeping theme of uh, the changes in China's economy over the last 30 years, which is the urbanization uh, of of society and, and all the success that they had, frankly, in, in lifting people out of, um, you know, agricultural existences. Um, yep. And moving people into um, uh, urban environments by the hundreds of millions. Um, so, is this is like is Evergrande part of that story, or do you think it's just simply a market issue?
0: So, so, so here is the underlying story. The underlying story is that China. Um, one of the ways that China got itself out of poverty uh, is the export led growth model, which, you know, has was adopted by Japan was adopted by South Korea. Um, and you know, the, the benefits of the export led growth model is that you don't have to depend upon domestic demand to drive return on investment. You, you know, you've got a poor, you've got a poor domestic consumer that you really can't support that much demand. So what do you do? You, you turn that poverty into an advantage and you sell to other people, uh, other more established consumers outside of your home country uh and you export and that enables you not just to make some money it, it enables you to turbocharge investment you channel all of the proceeds into investment and you build up capacity much more quickly than you could have done without that and that has been a very successful model for a lot of countries especially when linked with opening up Aspects of their economy, as China most certainly did in the 1980s and 90s, uh, and even going into the 2000s. So that was very successful, and it allowed them to grow out of a lot of mistakes. You know, had a bankrupt banking system in 2000 because of you know the the legacy of, of of communism, and they were able to grow out of a lot of that because of the productivity gains that were unlocked by all that investment and and, and all that. Uh, opening of the economy however um with the export-led growth model what japan found in the 1980s uh and mainly because because it became the second largest economy in the world is that relying on external demand by running you know trade surpluses you can do that for a time until you become so large that that becomes a very significant burden on the rest of the economy the rest of the global economy um and that other countries can't absorb that uh you know they're well they're they're happy to in the the beginning when you're kind of up and coming but when you're the second largest economy in the world you know china can't double the amount of of you know furniture it sells you know every year (laughs) to the to the rest of the world and and have them be in a happy place and so you have to strike a better balance um and one of the one of the kind of warning signs that that was happening was the 2008 financial crisis when, you know, a, you had debt, which was, you know, in large part, res- you know, you pay China and then China lends it back to, you know, developed countries. And, uh, and that debt became problematic uh, in different ways. And in 2008, the demand for Chinese exports fell off dramatically from those countries. How did China respond? Um, it did not respond by Saying okay, we have to sort of take that hit and we have to rebalance our economy towards um, towards more domestic consumption. They said, okay, we've lost exports or we've lost a significant chunk of exports. We'll make it up by doubling down on investment. Now remember, investment turbocharging investment was only made possible because you had a source of demand that didn't come from your own economy. So now they're saying we're going to make up for it by turbocharging investment again, and there was a in 2008, 2009, 2010, a gigantic credit wave which uh, boosted investment immensely in China, including in real estate, but in all kinds of areas. I mean, there's people who talk about the steel industry of China and how much overcapacity exists there uh, that causes a lot of anxiety and problems throughout the rest of the world. Um, so, so on a whole bunch of fronts. Uh, China massively invested and doubled down on investment and that to get those returns on investment, where's it going to come from? It, It can't come from abroad. It can't come from domestically because you're not growing the consumer, domestic consumer commensurate with that investment boom. And then you get, you know, you get Evergrande, uh, and you get, and Evergrande is the tip of the iceberg in terms of the debt that is not generating returns. Um, So, so you cope with that by rolling over the debt. Uh, And when you roll over the debt, you basically, you know, pretend to pay yourself interest uh, and issue a bigger loan. But that sucks up more and more credit into the economy into unproductive ways. So what you get is less and less real growth for more and more credit. Mm
4: -hmm. And
0: China's never really gotten off this ability, this, this, this cycle. Uh, this treadmill of more, pumping more and more credit into the economy to boost investment more and more in the hope that somehow it will deliver a return that will be sufficient to pay back that credit.
2: So, and that, that transition to the consumer economy is going to be a decades long process, right? Um,
0: yeah. And, and, you know, it's not to say that the Chinese consumer economy hasn't been growing, it has been growing, but it hasn't been growing commensurate with uh the capacity that's being created in that economy Mm. and and you know there was i remember a couple of years ago going to australia and being told don't worry about that because they're having uh they're having this huge urbanization boom and that's gonna that's gonna make up for it well you know urbanization is all fine and good but it's not urbanization that really generates wealth it's the productivity gains that it hopefully unlocks and so it needs to exist in an environment where capital is being channeled in you know reasonably uh, productive directions uh, and the problem right now in china is that you know all the low hanging fruit has been picked you know you've taken the peasant from the farm and put them in a the factory and that's great um, but the the productivity gains going forward for the chinese economy are not going to be you know as easily won as As they were in the past, and that's a good—it's a good problem to have in some ways. You know, you're no longer just the cheapest provider of labor to the world, but um, but it raises new challenges, and you have to go about uh, go about meeting them. This is one of the reasons why people were very excited and hopeful when she put out at the beginning of his you know term in office this set of economic reforms that you know was hopefully going to do that, but a lot of that has simply not been realized because. The, the, the underlying theme of the third plenum document when she took power was the market will decide the market will be decisive. Mm. And I, at the time I said, okay, great. That is what the Chinese economy needs in a whole bunch of ways, especially when it comes to finance. But if the market is decisive, the party isn't.
4: Mm.
0: And we saw when yeah. there was a big, when there was a big, um, uh, uh, stock market bubble recently, you know, a couple of years ago in China, were they willing to let the market decide? No. The state stepped in massively yeah. to try yeah. to prop up the market at certain levels. So, you know, Xi is not comfortable with the implications of some of the things that, you know, he was saying at the very beginning needed to happen in China's economy. Um, I,
2: I want to definitely want to dive deeper into the, Deliberalization of markets Uh, Just a quick word from our sponsor uh, That this episode of the BIP show Is brought to you by Bridge Street Capital Partners A Sydney-based corporate advisory firm That specializes in equity capital markets transactions For companies listed on the ASX Primarily in the mining, energy and tech sectors Sophisticated investors who want to hear about Bridge Street's upcoming capital raises can send their details to info at bridgestreetcapital.com.au and mention the BIP show in your note. So, um, Patrick Chauvinik, um, uh, let's pick up on this this question exactly with the that you were just talking about with the, the level of uh, embracing the market forces that, that China has been through over the last couple of decades. In the last 12 months, we've seen this dramatic deliberalization, I think you can characterize it as, um, and now in the last couple of months, we've heard about this very clear uh, open drive for wealth redistribution, and we've had sudden rule changes for companies, so education companies that were listed on um, uh, US exchanges uh, were told, well, you can't do that anymore. Their stock prices got annihilated. Um, Do you think that... uh, the the CCP has a natural red line somewhere that it could apply um, to this deliberalization, or is it the case that this could just continue to be unpredictable in terms of where the next move is? So
0: 2008 was, and the crisis that took place in the West was a real uh, turning point in China in terms of its attitude towards the, uh, not towards the rest of the world, but towards its own economy. Uh, before 2008, the view in China, the dominant view in you know, official Chinese circles, was that in order to have a modern economy, you had to look more like the United States. Now, they weren't comfortable with all that meant, and they weren't necessarily signing on to everything you know that, that that would imply. But they definitely did look to the United States and to you know, other economies like it. As uh, kind of a gold standard, at least a silver standard, uh, when it came to you know regulation, when it came to transparency, openness, etc., and you saw that with the push for China to join WTO, because now that gets a lot of criticism in the West to say, oh, we let them in without really uh, signing on to all the things that they should have signed down to. But at the time in China, uh, the Premier Zhu Rongji really wanted WTO as a way of pushing reforms throughout the Chinese economy and opening it up in ways that he could not do if he fought each battle on its own. And so WTO would be a way of getting a whole bunch of reforms to take place in China. Um, go to 2008 and witnessing you know, all of the financial and economic problems uh, that took place in the United States and then subsequently in Europe and then the and then the Chinese response was like i say to, to pour in credit and to direct it towards investment and you know initially it certainly created very high rates of growth and sustained rates of growth there, there were problems that were building up but but that you know but if you look at the headline numbers you'd say wow China really really got through that pretty well and so the view in China shifted to, well, you know, they, maybe we've got the, the recipe. Maybe they don't. And we don't really have to change. Um, so when you, when you saw things like TPP, you know, the rationale behind TPP regionally was not just that it would benefit the, you know, the, the countries that participated, but that it would be the kind of this example to China of what they needed to do. Um, if they wanted to be part of that and and that was supposed to be a real incentive at the same time China's been undergoing this this you know kind of rethinking saying well maybe you know maybe maybe we're better off not being part of that maybe we're better off with the with the recipe that we have and um, and going our own way and you and you've over the past ten years kind of gotten this increasing sense that of of confidence and i would argue overconfidence because i think that 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 ignored a lot of the problems that were being created by china's own approach to these sorts of things and that were being papered over um with more and more credit and and the ability of the state to intervene whenever there was sort of you know a correction was was uh bubbling up but but the the view has shifted and and i think that there are a lot of people in china there's still plenty of People in China who believe that, you know, the reforms in the third of document uh, are, are necessary and overdue and, and that, you know, trouble is, is uh, uh, accumulating in China without, without going in that direction. But, you know, they've been eclipsed by people who say, uh, no, China has uh, a much better way of, of handling things and a much better way of developing its economy than the West does, and, and we're going to go our own way. So, so I think a lot of what you see now is a product of that shift and a product of that growing confidence, even at a time when a lot of the assumptions behind that growing confidence uh, in China's own direction you know, might be looking a little questionable. But
2: when you that, say there are those competing um, views uh, inside the CCP, C- uh, how much of this is Xi himself? Uh-huh. And, and how much is, um, you know, people who fall in behind him and, and other significant figures within the party?
0: Well, she is certainly, um, like, I, like I began by saying, a top-down kind of guy. You know, he instinctively wants control of things and of outcomes. And when you want control, um, you, you exert control. Um, even if he realized on some level that exerting control might be counterproductive. Uh, so, so I do think that she's personality does matter a lot. Uh, there were certain, I mean, even people who are senior and remain senior advisors to him, like Lou hook seem to be more uh, liberal earlier on and, you know, and, and played a key role in, in, things like that Third plenum document and and suggesting that china needs to move in the direction but you know when the boss says we're heading east you don't say uh it's certainly in china you know there's no other party that says no we should head west um so so you get with the program and and i think that there are a lot of people you know i i do think that there are people who quietly are unhappy with the direction that she has taken the economy you started to see that bubble up a couple different times. One time was when the when the stock market went belly up and crashed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second time was during the trade war. There was some questioning of, "Hey, how did he get us into this? You know, why why couldn't we mollify the U.S. in certain ways um, and give them a little bit of what they wanted? Why did we get you know go so far down this path of of, of conflict? And are we going to be in trouble? Even during the initial stages of COVID." Um, when it when it was mainly a Chinese problem, and it looked like it right, really might be spinning out of control within China and shutting down the economy, uh, there was there was an open question about you know how this would affect Xi and the power that he had. Um, he did somehow get it under control, very you know through very draconian measures. Um, you don't necessarily have to believe the, all the numbers that come out of China, the COVID numbers that come out of China. Is realize that yeah, it was contained in some way. Um, and, um, and then it spread to the rest of the world and the rest of the world looked bad by comparison. Um, so she was able to say, say, well, you know, aren't you happy that you're in China where we got it under control? So there were a number of times when she has sort of flirted with things going bad and people wondering, well, are the knives going to come out? You know, are the people who have quietly opposed she, but were afraid to say anything. Are they going to come out and say, look what you've done? But that's never happened to them, you
1: yeah, know, it, so. Uh, and, and Patrick, so what have we got coming up in November? We've got the sixth plenum in, at the end of the year, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong on that one. And then um, I think that sets the stage for C to uh, go for another term next year, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, the, the main question that I get from investors is uh, basically it doesn't matter what, what's happening today. Will this either lead to okay? There's some trouble that's going on right now, but eventually Alibaba is going to be okay, and Tencent's going to be okay, and 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 China Tech is going to be fine, and Chinese companies are going to be okay, and that's fine. And then there's this other side that's saying, no, it's actually this is uh, a small move towards C being a big fan of Mao, apparently, um, moving it towards the next stage. And uh, if I may, I'm just going to read something that. Um, was posted by uh, Jonathan Payne, who was a, a guest on the show and a big fan of ours as well, um, in the Payne Report, which was, and he's quoted um, a few things. One from the Wall Street Journal, um, which was uh, uh, Ling Ling Wei's article in the Wall Street Journal, published 20th of September. Xi Jinping aims to reign in Chinese capitalism. How huge uh, a uh, Mao's socialist vision and this is the extract from it, underpinning Mr. Xi's actions is an ideological preference rooted in Mao's development theories, which call state capitalism a temporary phase that can help China's economy catch up to the West before being replaced by socialism. An ardent follower of Mao, Mr. Xi has preached to party members that the hybrid model has passed its use-by date. So that's that's the, the, the alternate view, which is that, this is not temporary. This is actually the shift. If we play the tape to the end, what, is, what does the scenario look like? And this will lead us to the geopolitical stage as well. If this is actually, um, you know, the next term, technically he can he can be leader for a very long time. And if this is actually the shift towards following, you know, the hybrid model has worked, capitalism has worked, money has worked, now we can actually take that next step. What does it look like when, when I'm an old man? <laughs> so I
0: think it really depends on what you believe is the narrative of the Chinese economy over the past 40 years. And you know,
1: my narrative
0: would be, uh, when I went to China in 1986, one of my most striking memories, you know, I was visiting a <laughs> communist, country, okay. And, and it looked more like North Korea at the time. Uh, when I subsequently went to North Korea, you know, uh, twice in, in, you know, 2000, around 2000, I'm sorry, 2008. Um, You know, it looked like China was when I visited in 1986, which is, uh, you know, most people work for state work units. Almost everyone worked for state work units. Um, And there were no shops, there were no restaurants, there were no advertisements. Um, It was a state-directed economy. And one of my most striking memories was getting off a boat in Guilin, and there was this guy who was selling soft drinks um and he had a it was in the middle of the countryside and he had this refrigerator like you would see in a you know in in a in a convenience store mm-hmm. and with a with a um with an extension cord going all the way off to the next village and he was sitting there selling soft drinks to us that guy is probably a billionaire right now <laughs> uh, Because that kind of what what that was was the opening wedge of uh, a Chinese economy that was able to take to harness um, the ingenuity and initiative of people who wanted to improve their lives. And one of the things that, that Deng Xiaoping was doing at that time, and there was a bumpy road through Tiananmen and everything else, but he never wavered in saying that the Chinese economy must be more open. And it must be more open to the world. And it must be more open internally to create to to create this kind of opportunity. There's another narrative that says state capitalism that says, you know, it was really led by the guiding hand of the state that all this, you know, that investment in key areas and uh, the ability to direct investment where it was wanted and needed. Uh, developed this you know, this rapid development model that was superior to all the kind of inefficiencies and, and chaos that sometimes takes place in the West. And that's why they've had uninterrupted growth for the past you know, 40 years. Well, you know, now the, then the question is, okay, so if you embrace the latter, what are the implications for the former? You know, I would argue that they are learning the wrong lessons about what really drove economic growth in China, and that they are killing the goose that lays the golden eggs. And that they may not be evident immediately because there's a lot of momentum. But, you know, going into the future, not only do you have um, the fact that it's a developed economy and wages aren't as cheap as they used to be and people expect more, but you also have a demographic situation where the The economy is the population is rapidly aging Uh, you have a shrinking you may have a shrinking population overall but you certainly have a shrinking uh work working age population and so what is going to be the key to tackling those challenges if you went back to the reponent document it was you know you need more openness and you need uh, an economy that's more responsive to market forces if she has ditched that and he he may well have um what are the implications for Chinese growth going forward? I think they're not very good, and that may not become evident right away. But uh, and there may be all kinds of ways that you could brush over and, and paper over uh, the the losses. Um, but um, but I, I think I think it's a very it's a very negative direction. And does you know the, how does that translate into Chinese power? Well, it undercuts Chinese power. And it, I mean, it may, it may look like China's more powerful because it's more assertive, but a lot of that is based on things that they are now throwing you know, out the back window.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think the Belt and Road project sort of got found out a little bit too early?
0: Well, you know, Belt and Road, interestingly, was a response to a problem that they had, which they no longer have. And the problem that they had was that they were running chronic trade surpluses and also capital was flowing into china and so all of this money had to be recycled it it had you know there was more money flowing into china than was flowing out and that has to go somewhere and uh, the you know the first place it goes into is us treasuries but that's not very good when interest rates are you know 1 to 2% so so what do you do with it well for years they've been looking at ways of how do we how do we uh, invest this more productively, uh, rather, I mean, the real answer is to, to rebalance your economy and to not have so much money flowing in that you don't know what to do with. Um, to, to actually raise the standard of living of the Chinese consumer by allowing them to channel that out and drive growth globally uh, in a way that actually helps the Chinese economy in the long run. Uh, that's my answer. But, but, you know, if that's not your growth model, Uh, or if you're not willing to make that transition to that kind of growth model and the changes that that involves, uh, what are you left with? Well, I I have to invest it somewhere. Uh, And they've, they've done various things to try to invest it. I mean, China Investment Corporation, you know, was supposed to do that. But Belt and Road was another way to try to do that. But the problem is, is that unless you're investing in things that actually generate return, and if the rest of the global economy, here's the problem. You know, back in the back in the nineteenth century, Britain could export to the world, take the proceeds, and invest in the world. Yep. Do it productively because the rest of the world needed to catch up. The, the The world was supply constrained, so you needed a provider of goods and a provider of capital. In after world war ii the united states could do the same thing after world war one and world war ii the united states could do the same thing because the rest of the world had to recover from the war they needed a provider of goods and capital the rest of the world does not need a provider of goods and capital right now it's demand start
2: hmm.
0: so when you pro- when you provide goods and you provide capital you are adding to the global imbalances that uh that the world is awash in capital in search of a return um,
1: okay. after- Patrick, and, and this is going to lead us into Orcus, which Cargo is going to take us there. You mentioned it, it needing it, it being a capital issue, Belton Road. It being a capital issue with regards to it, it being a capital issue. You, you didn't mention influence.
0: Well, certainly there are. The perception is is that if you if you go and you do this, uh, that you know you're going to be like Britain in the nineteenth century and like the US, you know, in the early 20th century, and be able to exert influence and, you know, play a bigger role. Um, and yeah, certainly, you know, in an immediate sense, if you're funding things, um, yeah. then you do, but it all depends on the sustainability of, of those investments. Um, and if if what you're doing is investing in more overcapacity abroad instead of at home, uh, and instead of providing some of the demand that is needed to drive returns on those investments, then the influence that you're going to exert is going to run into, you know, some problems right away when you start not getting paid. And you're going to have to face a choice of exerting that influence, you know, in a very negative way, uh, by taking things over and demanding repayments and what have you, uh, as opposed to a positive way and being, you know, and financing real growth. So that's what i would say is of course you know if you write checks uh regardless of what happens to those checks you're going to have a certain amount of influence in the short run Mm. but 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 really sustainable influence is built on a you know a a global economic model that works
2: Mm. yeah look look, guys speak speaking of the diplomacy side um uh, I, i want to talk about Aukus in a second but how significant do you think this um Prisoner exchange between China and ca- Canada was last week. I think it was, um, because you were talking about you know how China has benefited from all this inward investment over the years, um, but surely now a lot of businesses are going to be reassessing the risks um, around doing that.
0: Yeah, I think that there is a shift in attitude in China that says. You know, maybe we don't need all this foreign investment. And, and on, a, on a certain level, you know, the flows that I was describing, that is true on a gross, ba- you know, on a, on a net basis. China does not need to be importing capital. But that said, um, free flows of capital between countries, regardless of whether they are um, what the net flow is are good in the sense that they create competition in the economy, they create, you know, they introduce new ideas, new ways of doing things. I think that foreign investment continues to play a very important role in China's economy and, and you know, the kind of productivity gains that they want to realize. I mean, I, I can go back to, what am I talking about? I mean, the the the, the entire fast food industry, you know, or, or the entire restaurant culture in China, um, you know, w- was, was kind of introduced by, companies like mcdonald's and you know kentucky fried chicken going into china and saying you know look this is how it's done Mm. and i'm not saying (laughs) that oh china needs you know foreigners to tell them what to do there's plenty of innovation in china but when you have regardless i mean if you're in the united states economy um having other countries you know coming in with a different point of view and introducing products and introducing ways of, of of doing things is a is a productive spur, but China right now seems to think that's not really necessary, and we're probably better off without it. And the response under COVID, this concerns me a great deal. Has been, well, you know what? We're we're shutting down our borders, which is okay, maybe necessary um, under the circumstances. But I kind of get a feeling like she likes it a bit too much, <laughs> like not having. Uh, one of the things I always used to say was, you know, China's DNA has really changed because you've got. Um, Regardless of what you know, she wants to do, because you've got uh, people from China traveling all over the world. I mean, you see them, right? Or you used to see them. Yeah. Um, and, and they can see what the rest of the world is like. And you can't, you know, they're not peasants to be just told what to do. Um, and, and they've worked abroad. They've studied abroad. They've traveled abroad. Well, you know, a lot of that has stopped now.
4: Mm-hmm. And
0: I get the feeling. Like, and, and also, you know, travel foreigners into China on business and other things has, has kind of screeched to a halt. Um, so, you know, will that, will, will, will that stop when the emergency, when the medical, you know, necessity for it stops? I'm, I don't know. Um, cause there seems to be an attitude of, well, you know what, this just showed how little we need of that, um, and, and how unnecessary it really is. So there's this sense in which China is starting to insulate itself for the rest of the world, care a lot less about what people think about China as a, place to do business and that is worrisome to me i mean they specifically mentioned um uh you know uh Meng and and uh, the the taking of the two canadians as essentially hostages i mean it's pretty clear that that's what they were mm-hmm. and that they were exchanged for her mm-hmm. um you know we can, one can debate about whether that was an exchange it should have taken place or not taken place but even before that you know that took place it was clear that they were hostages and and that They would not have been arrested had they you know had mung not been held right and and they were released when mung was released um that together with all the things that are happening in hong kong with the national security law will certainly make some people question uh their safety when they go to china especially if they're involved in any kind of policy issue relating to china um and uh I don't think you see that right now because it's being masked by COVID, and the fact that you can't go to China anyway. Really, um, and but,
1: but, but uh, yeah. Congo, just before you, just before you charge on, it's, I still, it still blows me away. And until I'm wrong, uh, for the last 21 days, because I, I, I remember sort of following this. So from September nine. Uh, Xi Jinping, I'm never going to get his name right Xi Jinping <laughs> hasn't yeah. set foot outside China for 600 days mm-hmm. and that is now 620 days okay. from that is that weird
0: uh, not necessarily um, I mean part of that is COVID and nobody's gone anywhere um, and you know uh, there is mean, a world later. there is a there is, there is a um, i mean there is kind of a parallel that people will draw to to mao in this sense that you know uh, a lot of the leaders of the communist party had traveled abroad dung Xiaoping uh, went to france joe Enlai went to france uh they i don't know whether you would call them international but they certainly had had an experience outside of china
1: it was, um, in the, it was international back then
0: and and mao Mao never left China except for I think one little trip to Russia once, and it was you know he wasn't impressed. Uh, so, so uh, uh, there is kind of this you know this this pattern of internally focused leaders versus externally focused leaders in China, and she is almost certainly internally focused. I mean, there was a time when you know I guess she did go to Iowa or something and stay with a family, and there was a big uh, much to do made about that when he went when he visited the United States and stayed with them again. So it's not like he doesn't have any, you know, kind of external, but yeah, I do think that, uh, you know, she thinks more these days about what's going on in China and a lot less about what the rest of the world thinks. And and the other disturbing thing that we start to see is this, and I'm sure you've you know, been familiar with this, is this wolf warrior diplomacy where, uh, mm-hmm. where, where, you know, uh, chinese diplomats quote unquote right uh become trolls online and basically say you know sling insults at people and at leaders and at countries um
2: it's become very tedious.
0: i mean you know it's not as though the united states has been immune to that over the past couple of years but (laughs) but you know that that um when that's being tolerated and rewarded i mean clearly they're doing it because it, it gets them not just attention, but very positive attention, mm-hmm.
1: domestic. If you do it wrong, um, right. you
0: yeah. you've got a well, you know, well, I, even I haven't seen anybody really punished for it. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the upside is a whole lot more than the downside. So, I mean, yeah. it, it obviously, uh, comes from the top that that's a okay thing to do. Uh, but. You know, I, I think it's created a lot of animosity around the world towards China, and it's,
1: it's and it's, it's you know, yeah, it's, it's almost as if people are sort of ready for it. Um, speaking of animosity around the world, Colgo?
2: Mm-hmm. yeah, well, um, I know we're we're tight for time, but uh, Patrick, need to talk quickly about um, AUKUS, <laughs> this um, new strategic initiative that kind of sits alongside the Quad. Um, uh, with, um, uh, you know, Australia, um, uh, yeah. Japan, India, and the US. But the military muscle in the Pacific is something that's, you know, it's effectively on our doorstep here. Um, it's been a major theme of the of the past decade. Um, uh, we've had Hong Kong, and now there's this kind of like drip-drip effect uh, in terms of tensions with Taiwan. Um, how significant do you think AUKUS is in this picture, and, and what do you think might change as a result of it?
0: I think it's one more step uh, along, you know, a path that that has that that uh, both countries have been uh, looking at enhancing for quite some time. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, quite some time. I mean, the past decade as as you know, concerns about China have risen. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't pin too much on this particular initiative. D- this is the direction. I mean, the U.S. is in the process of rediscovering the uh, Australian Alliance, which has been, you know, which has a long history uh, going back certain, certainly the world war II, arguably back to world war one. And, um, and the role that, I mean, most Americans are not conscious at all, even in policymaking circles of the role that Australia played in world war two. So um, in the Pacific. So, so, you know, I think there's a rediscovery of that and a recognition of that, the importance of that relationship in this part of the world. Uh, I think there's, you're seeing a, maybe not a rediscovery of the role of Japan, but, but, but a growing awareness of its, of its strategic importance uh, in the region. Uh, India is, you know, a country which the United States has simply not had that much of a productive relationship, but it doesn't have much of a history with, um, unlike Britain. Uh, you know in India you you know when I traveled through India I was always you know a great awareness of what was happening in kind of the Anglo world and not in you know, in the American world uh, but I think that's starting to shift because of, of China and um, and I think you'll continue to see that now where all the pieces fall into place you know France right uh, <laughs> India, Japan that remains to be seen and sorted out. But that's the direction. And China has only given that a boost by some of its more most recent actions.
2: Do you, do you think there will be conflict with Taiwan? Do you think that's going to get hot?
0: So I don't think there inherently needs to be conflict over Taiwan, uh, in the sense that like it's inevitable and this is what's been, you know, that they've got it in their sights. I do think that obviously reuniting China, Greater China, would be a big feather in Xi's cap. Um, they may be feeling more confident about it. At least their 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 kind of overall power that they could exert. Uh, and I think that there is in the in China there is a view that the United States is a declining power, and that uh, it's just it's a lot weaker than it seems. Now that was. By the way the view of japan in (laughs) in 1940 so so um you know that that can be a miscalculation sometimes but but um but i do think that there is a view that maybe they can push a lot harder than they have been willing to in the past and we'll see where that leads because does the us and other countries do they do they truly push back um so in japan and, and obviously taiwan is, is is caught in the crosshairs there but you know it's not just the united states expressing uh, concern about that japan has expressed a lot of concern about that um and even i think had a very high level meeting just the other day uh with someone from taiwan so you know uh there are a lot of moving pieces there I do think more broadly uh this idea of whether China sees itself as needing the rest of the world uh is you know is a is a big question mark here um and and they are certainly feeling more assertive uh but you know like I say that assertiveness has also generated a response in return
2: mm-hmm. It's certainly going to be interesting. Um, this has been a fantastic chat and we are out of time, but I can't let you go without congratulating on you on uh, getting your private pi- pilot's license uh, recently. I am. Um, uh, uh, yeah, really? so, Yeah. Yes. So, so, uh, certainly some of the happiest moments of my life have been uh, in the handful of times I've been at the controls of a small aircraft. So, um, the, what, this
0: what? was my COVID, this was my COVID project. Oh, know? fantastic. we were all, we were all locked in. I honestly had no idea that I would do something like that. Um, and, uh, what do you find? I, I, just Cessna 172. I mean, you yeah, know, yeah, old, yeah, it's old school. But, 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 <laughs> um, but I got into it oddly enough through Microsoft Flight Simulator oh, uh, yes. and, and, you know, uh, we were all locked indoors. And that came out and it was like a way to travel so i could you know i could get in a plane and fly over sydney and look down on all the things that i can't go and do and see around the world and uh and i began to think well you know why don't i learn how to do this for real so uh it kept me very focused in times when a lot of people were kind of going stir crazy um on going out there and flying and, and learning how to do that so yeah it was, it was fun
1: that's that's
0: that was outstanding
1: and and you got your hours and everything uh through the through the lockdown I, yeah i it <laughs> I mean,
0: was a, I, I could go out and you know at least uh
1: go out and sit with somebody
0: you know wearing a mask in a in a, hmm. in a air, airplane and it, that wasn't too much of a risk or concern so yeah okay, uh,
2: if i can if i can just point out to patrick on his twitter feed sometimes he'll be um on the flight simulator and he'll post some screenshots um with some commentary about where he is in france but also delivering history lessons about what happened in that particular area uh, <laughs> in 1941 or whatever it was um so uh, which i always find very very amusing and
4: uh, um uh, yeah
0: i kind of go and i i explore the world through uh you know vicariously through that and and it's i'm a big history buff so uh you know going and flying at least virtually old i'd like to someday fly you know old planes for real uh and that would be an interesting experience but that hasn't been you know <laughs> i'm not there yet but but uh but being able to fly them virtually and then tell the story of what you know the stories behind them is kind of an interesting way to explore the world
4: yeah
2: well if i if i can make you jealous i'm very jealous of you having your license, but um. If I can make you jealous, I once uh, flew in a in a tiger moth for for an hour. Um, oh, cool! Which was uh, definitely in the top five coolest things I've ever done. Um, and uh, uh, the the guy who um, was uh, the the pilot was a, a a stunt pilot. So we took off at dawn in Sydney, um, and there was a mist on the ground, and there was a hot air balloon uh, taking off from a nearby field, and uh, we got up in this. Um, in this tiger mountain it is it, it takes off at about 35 knots so um we flew towards this you know so there's no acceleration it just it just sort of wheels down the runway and goes into the air <laughs> and um uh so we went and then flew around he flew us around in um, a spiral up uh, around this um hot air balloon and i have photographs of it i had a, a dslr camera because that, that was what you needed for a good camera in those days these days it would just be a mobile but i had a little DLS, dlsr dslr camera hanging around my neck and i was able to lean out of the cockpit and take photos through the braces of the wings of this um, hot air balloon in the mist and then he let me fly it for a little while which was just incredible um yeah and it's uh, yeah amazing experience
0: there is something um kind of reassuring right now about being able to focus on a technical skill (laughs) um because you know everything is so politicized i mean even covid um is so politicized and and people argue and who's to say who's right and who's wrong and you know uh, it it doesn't seem like you can convince can convince anybody of anything these days even on china (laughs) And, and um and then to be able to you know just like learn how an engine works or or uh You know when you land i mean you either land or
1: you don't (laughs) so so there's no there's no kind of my opinion is this (laughs) who's to say i'm wrong Uh, yeah i found the same thing patrick uh, uh, with with that as well just uh, uh, concluding my license as well which i started when i was 16 that that yeah just clinging to things that are right and wrong the wind is blowing from x you are traveling at x like (laughs) <laughs> it's, yeah. it, you are, it, 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 i found that as well good good, yeah, there's good accountability there's you know yeah. very rapid accountability for for
0: the correctness of your actions. yeah ac- absolutely
2: a- accountability with the ground yeah um yes yeah so um look this has been a fantastic uh, chat i'm gonna wrap up don't forget to subscribe to the show rate us leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts this episode is brought to you by bridge street capital partners a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specializes in equity capital markets transactions for small-cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in mining, energy, and tech. Sophisticated investors who want to hear about Bridge Street's upcoming raises can send their details to info at bridgestreetcapital.com.au and mention The Bip Show in your note. You can find us on iTunes at The Bip Show or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore Bip underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search the Bip Show. James has a website which is now hosting all the extras. Google and Capital. Follow the links to The Bip Show. Um, and we're there individually at Colgo, at James willem 42, at Ken Vexler. And you can find Patrick at PR Chovanec. Um, he is really great on Twitter, always talking about what's going on. Uh, uh, full of insights, uh, history and um, uh, scenic shots from... Uh, uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator.
1: Um, I gotta see these shots. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, I used
0: to have, I used to have a lot of travel photos. Yeah. What happened? Well, you know, can't <laughs> really, can't really get out much. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. There's been this thing going on, with James. COVID. Don't worry about it. I'll explain later. Yeah. okay. Patrick. Chauvinik, um, Economic Advisor at Silvercrest Asset Management and a uh, um, uh, highly qualified China Watcher. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing all your insights.
0: Thank
3: you.
2: Uh, Ken, it's been great.
3: Yes, thank you, Patrick. Sorry, I, was, I I just was engrossed by everything you had to say and, and thus took a, took a
2: back seat. But thank you once again. It was really great. Uh, James, got to work on that pilot's license, mate.
1: Yeah, I've just got to finish it off. It's only been 24 uh, 24 years since I started it, so I should be able to finish it uh, in a couple of weeks, mate. No worries at all. No
2: problem.
4: Thank
1: you, Patrick, though. uh, Mate, that was sensational, and we will uh, have more to talk about, I'm sure.
2: Um, The show is produced by Rick Salter. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening.